right, it's good to, to be here. Thank you, team, for leading us. And welcome you guys online that are watching and watching this recording. We are looking forward also to being together in the summers in one service just to kind of build up, some, you know, we'll have a little more crowd. But I know many of you will be away for many weeks in the summer, and that's good. I encourage you just to use that as time of spiritual renewal and refreshing. The challenge that we find when it comes to Jesus is this that he just won't go away. I mean, people tried, have tried, and continue to try to just get rid of Jesus and, and you know, just push him out. And that was the true in the first century. It's true today. If you can't get rid of him, then, you know, try to dilute him. That's the other option, Right? And the people that Jesus irritates the most early in the book of Acts are religious people, but actually throughout the book of Acts. It's either it's Jewish you know, people or later on it's other religious people that find Jesus and his followers to be incredibly irritating and annoying. They just won't go away. Peter and John, the followers of Jesus, apostles of Christ, are just going to pray in the temple. They're living kind of in, in the aftermath of, of a horrific execution and, and an unexplained, at least to the secular mind, empty tomb. There's all these myths and stories floating around. Some people know what's true. Others are not sure what is true. These two men just come in to pray. They encounter this cripple at the gate of Jerusalem, of the temple. This is the, the mall of Jerusalem. Every, everyone comes in and out of the temple. This is the, the epicenter of the whole nation, of the whole city. And there these guys are in a very public place in a very prominent time. And this man asks for coins, for pennies, nickels, and dimes. And these men say, I can't help you in that department, but what I can give you is this. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. Reach out, extend your arm in faith and believe. And this man gets up and walks into the temple, the place where he had never, ever been allowed to go. He suddenly has access. And how did he get the access? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So he comes into the temple, and that's where we find ourselves today. What happened next? In verse 11 of chapter 3, it tells us that while the man was hanging on to Peter and John, all the people, completely astounded, ran together to them in the covered walkway called Solomon's Portico. I mean, they're just moving in. There's something is going on. I, I don't know. I was thinking about this. What are the things that attracted a crowd? when I was growing up, right? You know, what, what would draw people in? I mean, at, at high school and junior high, it was when there was a fight, right? Fight! I mean, everyone was like, boom, there. I mean, you see a crowd of people. Obviously, there were two guys or two girls sometimes even going, you know, fist to fist, you know, ha having a scrap, you know. When I was a younger kid, the local department store, it was a Kmart in my hometown. It's kind of the precursor to Walmart. It's, you know, anyway, this Kmart. Anyone remember Kmart here? This is, I'm dating myself here, right? There's still a few of them lingering in the, in the backwoods in the States. But anyway, the local Kmart. And, and it was like Friday night shopping night, right? And the Kmart was pretty crowded. And then the, the, the lady would get on the, 
on the announcer sheet. Attention shoppers, there is a blue light special in the children's clothing department. And, and like there would be like this blue light, do, 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 you know, flash. And like people would be moving from the store, like boom, to the blue lights. Like get out of the way, kids, you know, boom, you know, you know boom. And so, so this is what's happening here. People are crowding in. Blue light special, fight, whatever it is. Like, like everyone's like, what is going on here? And they see this guy. Wait a second, that's that guy. That's the, the, the tin can guy. That, that's, that's the guy that, that I threw a, you know, a couple of shillings to or whatever it was. You know, and, and here he is. Wow. I mean, they would have gone through these prayer rituals. You know, this was a common thing, but this was extraordinary. Nothing like this that happened for most of the people that were attending here. Um, and so, verse 12, it says, When Peter saw this, he declared to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as if we had made this man walk by our own power or piety? Why? Why, why are you looking at us like that? Now understand, there is this power struggle going on in this text. And Luke's first account of the Gospel of Luke, which is his first edition, this is the book of Acts, it's his second edition. I mean, he talks about the power and the power of Jesus Christ. I mean, he could, he could raise, you know, cripples and he could restore sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and, and lepers to, to fullness of health and even raising dead, a little girl and Lazarus. I mean, I mean, these stories are all been told. And the... Jewish officials did everything in their power to stop Jesus. What else could they have done? I mean, they, they handed him over to be executed. Like, the job is over, right? Okay, he's dead. Whew, let's go on with life now that we've removed this problem from our, our situation. And then all of a sudden there's this empty tomb and, and these crazed followers of Jesus running around talking about him like, what is going on? Can't we stop this thing? And here these guys are, like, like, what are you so surprised at? We didn't do anything here. And now here it comes. <laughs> it says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our forefathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. There it is. Oh, darn. <laughs> I thought we got rid of him. And here he is, boom, showing up again in the temple, the, you know, the, the name of Jesus and, and his power through his followers whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate after he had decided to release him. But you, verse 14, rejected the holy and righteous one and asked that a man who was a murderer be released to you. Verse 15, you killed the originator of life whom God raised from the dead. To this fact, we are witnesses. We're telling you what we saw. You guys did all this stuff to Jesus. You just wanted to get rid of what you saw was a huge problem. But God raised him from the dead. And in this little sermon, you'll see that Peter pre presents Jesus Christ in this glorious equivalence to, to God himself. He is God. He's referred to as the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Originator, or the, the One who leads the way into life. You killed that one. And we all saw this. You thought you got rid of the problem, but you didn't. You were part of a nefarious scheme and plan, but God had a bigger plan at work in even your evil plan, and he accomplished something greater than you ever thought possible. 
And he says in verse 16, on the basis of faith in Jesus' name, his very name has made this man, whom you see and know, strong. The faith that is through Jesus has given him this complete health in the presence of you all. Let it be known. It's not Peter. It's not John. It's not some secret Zebedee, you know, healing cloth. This is Jesus and Jesus alone. Only his Name has the power to do what you are witnessing right now, this man walking with us. It wasn't us. It was all Jesus. I love it, the way the apostles and, and, and Luke records it, you know, that, that they just bring the focus right back to, to Jesus. It's not about them. It's not about their organization, their, you know, administration, their plan, their program, their new book. It's all about Jesus. He says, it turns the corner here, verse 17. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as your rulers did too. But the things God foretold long ago through all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. I mean, if you've read the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, it talks about the suffering servant. Here it is. Christ has fulfilled that. We didn't see it back then, but now we see it clearly. The, the, the Savior had to die, had to suffer, had to take on the sins of, of the people. He had, to, he had to be the substitute. And then he calls them in verse 19 to action. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. You know, the... The old ink in the first century wasn't like our, our modern ink. It was kind of like a, a whiteboard pen. You, know, you, could, you could just sort of wipe it off and, and clean off the slate or whatever you were writing on. He's like, you want to have your sins removed. I mean, we all know that it's written in, in, in permanent marker, but, but Christ has the capacity to remove that, to, to blot it out, to, to cleanse you. If you repent. He says in verse 20, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and so that he may send the Messiah appointed to you. That is Jesus. Now this is the beginning of, of, of a significant turning point because as the Christian movement will grow, uh, it started with strong Jewish roots and a strong Jewish church, and pretty soon it's going to expand outside of the, the realm of Judaism and, and in, into all sorts of na nations from which many of us come from. And it would no longer be a Jewish church. If the church would move to Antioch. It'd be kind of a, a blended church, and that's the, the idea God would have, is that all churches would be blended of every nation, nation, nationality, and hopefully including Jewish people. But, but, but the Jewish people have, have struggled, even to this day, to acknowledge Christ as Messiah. Some do. Many don't. But here's their opportunity. You want those times of refreshing. You want the return of the Messiah. Well, you need to acknowledge Jesus. There is no salvation for anyone apart from Jesus. We'll discover, even if you're a devout Jew following the Old Testament, adhering to the law, you are not saved unless you believe in Jesus, the Messiah. And that's true of any religion. Any religion, which we will come to in chapter 4, verse 12. We'll, we'll see that really clear. But, but some people are like, well, if you are part of a religion that likes Jesus, then you're, you're, you're obviously in the same camp. You're not in the same camp. 
I was reading this story about a guy named Hussein. Hussein, uh, he, he, um, Christy Wilson, who taught at Gordon Conwell, wrote, writes his stories of when he was a missionary in Afghanistan. So this is in the 50s. This is way back when. And, and, and Hussein, he, he met Hussein in, in America, but Hussein was an Afghan university student who, who was really interested in religion. And as he read the Quran, he discovered Jesus in the Quran. And the Quran actually present, presents a pretty nice case about Jesus, not taking it as full as the Bible does, but it's just like, you know, the miracles Jesus does. He lives a sinless life. He's in heaven now. And, and Hussein said, you know, I really want to discover more about Jesus. So he's looking for a Bible. He cannot find a Bible anywhere in Afghanistan. They're just not there. His one professor has this New Testament in, in their language, and, and he wouldn't give it to him. He keeps bugging him and bugging him and bugging him. And finally he says, I'll let you have it for a week, but then you need to give it back. And so he takes it home and in his dorm room. He reads it and reads it and reads it and reads it and takes it back. And he's like, oh. And then there was, there was an American missionary that was teaching at the university as a sort of a tent maker. But he had to be really careful because oftentimes the government would send in these students to you know, be seeking and asking questions just to see if he would be trying to proselytize them, right? So the Hussein comes to this prof from America and it's like, hey, do you have a Bible? Yeah, I have a Bible. Can I have it? No, I can't give it to you. Because, you know, the prof's like, man, is this guy, it's a setup. Other teachers have been kicked out. I'm, I'm going to be careful. Well, his contract ends. And so he says to Hussein, look, Hussein, my contract's over. I'm going back to the States. I've left my Bible in the lecture hall in the drawer. If you want it, go get it. He runs. Runs. Opens the drawer. There it is. You know, he gets it. You know, finally he's able to come to the States, right, and, and actually be kind of in religious freedom. And he goes to church, and, and then these church friends take him to this camp. He's at this little, this kid's camp, right? They're, you know, singing the kid's song, doing the stuff, you know, and the speaker gets up and talks about Jesus Christ. It's like, if you'd like to accept Jesus Christ, would you stand now? And Hussein stands up, and his friend's like, no, this is for the kids. No, no. He's like, I want to do this, you know? So it's like, boom, he, he comes to faith in Christ. You can't get rid They had the first conference for Afghan Christians in New Jersey. It was the late 50s. Five Christians from Afghanistan. They all thought they were the only one. They get these five together and they all share their stories. And then the senior Christian in the group, the kind of the, the chieftain of the, of, the, of the group, says, you know what, three of us have been baptized, two of you haven't. You need to get baptized. And so they find a pool and they go and they baptize these guys and they explain what this is. But anyway, just fascinating because it's like you just can't get rid of Jesus. Even in that culture that was so hostile towards Christianity, this man who is an earnest seeker finds him. And that's what Peter's talking about here in Acts 3. This movement and what you see, this miracle, is a point to, pointing back to the cross, back to the empty grave. This resurrected Lord is still working in and through his people. You can't stop what Jesus is doing. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop it. He won't go away. In verse 26, this is the final, the final part of his sermon. It says, God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your iniquity. So what we found now in these sermons of Peter is, look, if you want Jesus, you have to turn from whatever you're believing in and following and acknowledge your sinfulness and receive Christ. You cannot add Jesus to whatever else you're doing and say, I'm just going to put Jesus the icing on my own personal cake and I'm going to keep living my life how I want. That's not the way it works. 
You want Jesus, you have to repent. You have to turn from your sinfulness. You cannot continue to do all sorts of, of things that, that are incongruent with what God would have you to do and say, yeah, I just want Jesus. And you can't, you know, wake up in the morning. Okay, I'm going to read my horoscope, right? What do the stars say today? And then I'm going to turn on the TV and watch some, you know, pop, you know, humanistic kind of self-help stuff. Yeah, that's good. And then I'm going to, you know, maybe, maybe you know, read some, you know, Deepak Chopra or whatever. And then, and then I'm going to read my Bible. And it's all just kind of mixed together. That's not the way it works. There is only one risen Savior. That's why he won't go away, because he's not dead. He's alive. And his life is lived out through the life of his followers and the believers. You in this room right now are evidence of the resurrection, because Christ's resurrection power has saved you and is bringing you into holiness and righteousness and, like I said in Philippians 2, the ability to think not of you, just of yourself but of others. I mean, that comes from God himself. So that's where we find ourselves in chapter 4. It says that while Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the commanders of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them angry because they were teaching the people and announcing in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. I mean, you think this would be an exciting moment. Christ, I mean, this man has been paralyzed for years. He's healed. Everyone should be celebrating. Wow, what, a, what an amazing thing. And these guys aren't celebrating. They're irritated. They're annoyed. They're just agitated. And antagonistic. The power sources of Jerusalem have converged on James and John, these two humble fishermen. You know, they, they, they're just you know, blue-collar guys, and there they are. Like, look, we just, present, we just invited this man in Jesus' name to walk, and he walked in here, and we walked in here, and now he's worshiping with us? Like, like isn't this great? No, it's not great. Why do you have to keep talking about that guy? Jesus. So in verse 3, they seized them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. I mean, they've tried imprisonment already, right? I mean, they, they, they tried to arrest Jesus and throw him in prison and, and kill him. It didn't work, right? So, so now they're doing it with his followers. And, and even today, on this day, uh, men and women in other parts of the world are, are being persecuted, arrested, in prison. Some are sitting in prison because of the name of Jesus Christ. Understand that. We, we are part of a, a bigger community, a bigger family. And, and many of our brothers and sisters are, are, are living this reality in China, in North Korea, in Nigeria, in Burkina Faso, in the Middle East. This is happening right now as we speak. You won't see it on the TV very often. It doesn't make the headlines on the mainstream media. But God knows what's going on. It kind of comes with the territory. Because Jesus won't go away and he irritates the power structures that are in this world, which underneath is the satanic forces of evil trying to influence people away from Jesus. But in the, through, through all that garbage, the message of the truth of Christ just cuts through. It says in verse four, many of those who had listened to the message believed. 
and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So it was before 3,000. Now we've got another 2,000 men, including women and children, I'm assuming, would, would be added on top of that number. So like, like, like this imprisonment, this act of, of severe aggression and intimidation doesn't produce like, like a cessation of the movement. It increases the movement. Turn the heat up, and you think, okay, we're going to burn it off. No, it just it keeps growing. It's like, what is going on here? But we'll see in the next day, verse 5. Their rulers, elders, experts in the law came together in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others who are members of the high priest's family. The who's who of, of the whole area were there. The names are listed. Intimidating names. Powerful names. You want something to happen? If you know one of those guys, it's done. They're all there. Gathered around. We need to stamp this thing down before it gets out of hand. It's not fitting in with, with our agenda, with our vision for Jerusalem. We, we need to just realign this because we have this our own kingdom idea, and, and, and this is a completely antagonistic to what we are trying to accomplish here. The who's who. Sometimes we are intimidated. Because we face some very powerful people, powerful groups, powerful organizations who don't like the name of Jesus or the exclusivity of Christianity and they're trying to just beat it down. And we think, oh, how can we ever fight that? Well, we don't have to fight it. Jesus fights his own battles. And we just can sit back and watch him do it. Although at times it includes imprisonment in chapter 6. We'll see it includes Martyrdom, yes, that happens. But the name and the mission and the kingdom of Jesus is never stopped. In verse 7, after making Peter and John stand in their midst, they began to inquire, by what power or by what name did you do this? Okay, so they're acknowledging something happened. They're not talking about, they don't give you details, right? We just want to, let's talk in generalities. Where did this come from? Who authorized you guys to, to start a little healing club in the temple precincts? Who, who did that? I mean, because we are the ones who hold the power and authority and jurisdiction over all this area. And you come, you know, so how did, the, how did this come to be that, that this event took place? They're trying to be very general. Notice they're not even acknowledging the fact that there is a name behind what happened there. The key, one older expositor has said, is, you know, you want people to ask questions. That the power of the church and the movement of Christ, Christianity, is that, is that the world looks at the followers of Jesus and says, how is it that they do that and that they live like that and that they're always there? And that, like, the, the questions is a key part of the witness, because there's, there's a transformative lifestyle and, and, and effects in your life that, that they can't quantify. So they're like, what, why is it like that? Why do you help each other out? Why do you care for each other like that? Why, why do you love each other that way? I mean, that's what the first century, you know, the, the, you know the, one of the historians was writing, man, those Christians love each other. It's just annoying. You know, it's irritating. What, what, who do they think they are? Well, they belong to Jesus. That's why. How is it that you 
did this. <laughs> it's a total setup for Peter and John. You see that in verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, replied. Now, in Mark 13, 11, Jesus made this promise. He's like, don't worry about what you're going to say. Because when you get dragged in front of it, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. He says in verse 13, this is what Jesus says. When they arrest you and hand you over for trial, do not worry about what to speak, but say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So God is, is fulfilling the promise of Jesus. Here in this moment, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is given the divine ability to, to respond to this intimidating tactic. All the power brokers of Jerusalem and, and Israel are standing in front of them. These guys are connected to the Roman government. And so there's power, there's fingers of power that head all the way back to Rome itself, the emperor himself. And these two blue-collar fishermen followers of Jesus are responding to this grand juris, jury of, of, and judges of, of, of Israel. And this, but they have this divine power inside of them. And Peter responds, rulers and elders of the people and elders, verse 9, if we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man, by what means this man was healed? He kind of pauses it as a question. Now understand what he's saying there, that idea of the good deed that was a benefactor. In the Roman culture and society, rich men and women would be benefactors. They would do good things for the community, for other people. They would build statues. They would host games. This was a part of the Roman culture that, that the aristocracy did, did good things for, for the people, and the people in turn followed them with their loyalty. It was sort of like, I do something good for you. You do something good for me. It was kind of part of the culture. So, so Luke inserts this idea, this, this word into the thing, saying, like, something good happened here. We, we can all acknowledge that. There's nothing nefarious or evil about this. Uh, a lame man now walks. It's a good thing. Now let me tell you how that came about. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you healthy. I mean, he couldn't have been more clear and succinct and direct. You want to know how, who authorized us to do this? Jesus, the one you killed, the one God raised from the dead. That's what's standing in front of you today. Another living proof of the resurrection right in front of you. The appropriate response, based on the evidence, as they consider this, would be for these leaders to say, yeah, we were wrong. We sure were misled and led astray, and we need to return our hearts and worship this one who does things only God can do. That would be the right response, right? Some, sometimes you're going to talk to people about Jesus, and you're, you're going to explain it, and you're thinking, it's so clear. Why don't they just receive it? Because they, they don't want to. They, they're not willing to. They don't want to surrender their own power, their own kingdom, their own life to Christ, even though he's the one who holds the power of, of life and death. Like, why wouldn't you want to follow Jesus? He, he lives forever. You live with him, you live forever. I mean, what are the alternatives? There is no alternative, except that you cling to your own myopic, narcissistic vision of life. I can do it better. But deep down you know that's wrong and not true. You need the life that only Christ can give you. 
And he says in verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, that has become the cornerstone. Now he's quoting the Old Testament here, right? And there, you know, I have, I have some pictures here. Like, so, so the first picture is this one here. This is called the keystone. That arrow points to the final stone placed in the arch. It's what holds the integrity of the arch together. And so he basically saying everything else in the Bible and, and your religious heritage points to that there's a keystone. Christ completes the whole picture. And I believe that's what the scripture teaches. Of course, other people understand it this way. The next picture here shows uh, this is the cornerstone. See that bottom stone there? You start there and then the whole foundation builds off of this. So you make sure that one's square and then the whole building comes off of that, right? And this was sort of an ancient building practice. Some older buildings sort of in, in our era will have like a capstone which like has an inscription dedicating it and recognizing when this started or whatever. But, but he's saying, you know, you know, Jesus is both the foundation and he is the keystone. He's, what, he's how it starts and he is also how it all comes together. I think he's both. But it's like basically you took that stone, and you threw it away when you crucified Christ. You, you're missing, your arch is going to fall apart if you don't put Christ in there. And you wonder why your life falls apart and my life falls apart. It's when I mess with the keystone that my life gets messy and ugly and difficult and doesn't progress forward, and, and I miss out on God's blessing. Why? Because I've, I've kicked the keystone out, and I'm trying to put my own stone in that place, and, 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 and things are starting to fall apart, and Jesus like, your life fits and works when Christ is the keystone. And he says in verse 12, there, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. I mean, the, He's, he's saying, look, this all happens so you understand. There is one name which saves people. It's the name of Jesus. Jesus is God. He's the Holy One. He's the Righteous One. I mean, he, he's clear about this, but he's like, there's only one name, Jesus. You can refer back to your Old Testament studies in rabbinical schools, but Christ is the fulfillment of all that. You want salvation? You need Jesus Christ. And this is where we irritate the whole world that we would dare to say there's only one way. Completely unpopular and divisive. Arrogant, even. A guy, an investigative reporter named Lee Strobel found this to be the most, like that verse that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's like, how can you claim to be the way? You can be a way, but the way, really, Jesus? And, and Lee's like, I, I gotta, I gotta, find a way to disprove that. This is, this is horrible. And it begins to investigate, 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 and, you know, and, and, you know, he's like, it's one thing to claim to be a way to God, but the way, that sounds intolerant, pretty intolerant. And then as Lee Strobel begins to investigate, he discovers, wow, he is the way. And then he turns around and he writes this book called The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith. And it's like, wow, you know, like he, he, he was an anti, you know, antagonistic, and now he is a follower and a believer in this. Way. It is not popular to have this opinion. But this is what God's Word says. I mean, many religions point to Jesus, partially. Gandhi liked Jesus. In fact, Gandhi said, if, if, if the followers of Jesus in India lived like Jesus, I think I'd become a Christian. 
Muslims like Jesus. Buddhists like Jesus. Baha'i like Jesus. He, he just fits into their, their buffet of, of religious and spirituality, and he's just another plate on, 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 the, on the table there. And, and then Christianity comes along and says, no, there's only one plate. Clear the buffet table one way. If you're eating other things, you're not, you don't have Jesus. There is only one way. The good news is, is that anyone who turns to Jesus discovers this way. That Jesus offers to you and me the full pardon of God. He invites you into full acceptance with God. He invites you to embrace a new identity as God's adopted child. He invites you to a place of extreme and significant value because you belong to him and you have a standing, a righteous standing because of Christ in him. Salvation is found in no one else. So, of course, the first question I have is, is do you know Jesus Christ? Have you confessed his name? And secondly, are, are, are you waffling on this? Are you kind of like, no, no, every road gets to the top of the mountain. It does. Jesus didn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. I don't, other people say that, but that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what God's word teaches. That's not what Jesus teaches. But our job is not to win all those arguments. Our job is just to turn people back to Jesus. Just keep bringing them back to Jesus. Let Jesus do the work. Look, you look into Jesus yourself, and, and you'll find out that he's very exclusive but he's also very inclusive. Greedy people can come. Immoral fornicators can come and find forgiveness. Swindlers, criminals, crooks, gossip slanderers, and even self-righteous, hypocritical religious people can find grace in Jesus Christ. Sinners of every kind. Good deeds, people that are just all about good deeds but, you know, don't really have faith in Christ. I mean, even they can find salvation in Jesus' name. It's open and available to everyone. And all we, if the followers of Jesus, I'm speaking to the group, if you hear that believe and, and are moving up with me on this journey, we just simply need to bring people back to this reality. They'll want to debate nuances of all other things and, and you know, just you know, address that, but then just, just circle it around, bring them back to Jesus. There's not a big religious debate about the Talmud or the Torah here. It's just, let me tell you about the name of Jesus. This is how it happened. He died. He rose again. He, we are the example and the living proof of the risen Christ, us. We, in his name, helped this man discover life. We didn't do anything. We just happened to be the conduits which helped him. And so in the, on June 19th, we're going to celebrate what the name of Jesus Christ can do in people's lives as we hear the testimonies of men and women that have come to discover this freedom. And it should be a reminder to all of us that this is why we're here, to share this name. Salvation is found in no one else. Team, would you come up, and, and they're going to lead us in, in a, a closing song. The end of, of, the, of the story of the Bible, I mean, like I referred to it earlier. It says in Philippians 2, that God gave Jesus the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone. Our task is to help people discover that before the great white throne. But say, now, confess now, kneel now, acknowledge now, receive now the best life can offer you. Because it's found in Jesus. The lame man is a picture of all of us, right? We're all spiritual cripples. But in the name of Christ, we grab his hand, he lifts us up, and we move up and out in a whole new reality of life. I invite you to receive that and to walk in that reality with me as we think about this story. Would you just close, bow with me in a word of prayer, and the team's going to lead us in a song. But if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I, I invite you today to receive him. You can just pray a simple prayer. Lord, I've, I've blown it. I, I'm a sinner. And I recognize that Christ died for my sins, and he is the risen Savior. I confess that Jesus is Lord, and I believe in my heart that you raised him from the dead, and I I pray you'll forgive me my sins and that I want to make Jesus the Savior of my life today. And Lord, I pray that through your people, the church, the risen Christ would be seen in our community this week. Empower these, my brothers and sisters, as they go to school, as they go to work, as they do things in their community, and just as they interact. Lord, may we show the risen Christ in our life, in our speech, in our action. I pray this in Jesus' name. Just stand with the team. Be seen in your lives this week, in your words, in your actions, most of all in your love. Be glorified, O oh Lord, in us, your church. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everybody said, God bless you.